just follow the kids, they said. It'll be fine, they said. I remember they gave me an option. They said, do you want to follow the kids or go before? But I felt like it was kind of a lose-lose, but now I realize that it actually was a lose and loser, and I picked wrong, but it's okay. It's all right. Um, we're getting into it. It's funny. Um, I grew up in church uh, my whole life. And I remember on Christmas Sunday or whatever Sunday we would celebrate Christmas, uh, they'd have the kids come up and they would do kind of a performance. We would do a performance just like that. And uh, I was always the kid who just stood in the back and didn't sing and didn't do any hand motions or anything. Um, so if that's your kid, maybe he'll become a pastor. You never know. Um, but my daughter actually sang a solo, so I was very proud of her. Um, my other I, I, dad failed, though. I sat on this side and she was singing on this side. So I didn't even see her at all. So I'm just going to watch the stream later. That's funny, right? Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. My other daughter, she is sick. She wasn't able to to make it. She was practicing all week, actually for weeks. Uh, And I remember hearing her sing the first song. um, And it's straight from scripture. I really like that song, God With Us. Um, It's from uh, the book of Matthew. Uh, And she was singing, you know, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. But instead of saying to take Mary home as your wife, she kept saying to take a mullet home as your wife. And I was like, is she saying what I think she's saying? So maybe it's better that she saves it up for for next year when she understands a little bit better what we're talking about. Anyway, uh, good afternoon. Um, It's good to see all of you. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. I know a lot of you guys are visiting. You're, you're here with family, friends. Maybe you go to a different church. Maybe you don't go to church at all. So we're, we're thankful that you could be here with us. Uh, and my Christmas gift to you is I'm going to talk two-thirds as long as normal. Okay, so you can ask your family members what that means. That's what I'm going to try to do at least. Okay, if I don't do it, Christmas is a time of forgiveness. Um, but anyway, I know a lot of people in our church are sick. So if you're on the stream, hopefully you feel better. My daughter's sick. My family was sick this whole weekend, or this whole past week, actually, not this weekend. But if you've been sick and you're here, well, praise God, you're here. Um, we're thankful for health. It's a blessing. God is good. Um, but let's hit the ground running. Okay, I know I already talked a lot, but they said you got to stall while the kids are like getting situated. So that's done. Okay, let's hit the ground running. Uh, we didn't talk about Christmas at all, really, at Zoe this year. We didn't do an Advent series. We just preached through Ecclesiastes, which might be the least Christmassy book in the entire Bible. But today we're actually going to talk about something Christmas-related. And to start us off, to kind of get the Christmas uh, juices flowing, I guess you could say, what names do you guys associate with Christmas? Just think about it. What names do you associate with Christmas? You don't have to shout it out or anything, but if you're thinking kind of along the same lines that I was thinking when I was kind of free forming it in my mind, you think of Santa Claus, you think of Rudolph, you think of Frosty the Snowman, maybe you think of Buddy, he entered into the Christmas lexicon a few years ago, maybe you think of Mariah Carey, maybe you think of Kevin McAllister, maybe you think of Marv, maybe you think of Harry, I don't know their last names. Maybe, hopefully, you think of Jesus. I didn't see anyone mouthing Jesus out there. A little bit disconcerting for our church, but we'll talk about that next week. Mary, Joseph, Gabriel, John the Baptist, John McClain. There are a lot of different names that we associate with Christmas. We could go on and on. Charlie Brown, Linus. But here's one that I'm sure at least one of you, hopefully, thought of. 
It's from a Christmas classic that came out decades ago. It's one of really not only the best Christmas movies that ever came out, but one of the best movies I think that was ever made. How about George Bailey? Ring a bell, George Bailey. If you aren't familiar, George Bailey is the protagonist of the movie It's a Wonderful Life. And if you don't know, It's a Wonderful Life is a story about this kind-hearted and selfless man named George Bailey who is beaten down by life. And it takes place on today. Okay, It takes place on Christmas Eve. And in the movie, George Bailey is standing on a bridge on Christmas Eve and he is contemplating taking his own life. It's Christmas Eve and he's thinking about jumping in a fit of despair. But before he jumps, George is stopped by an angel named Clarence who says, oh, wait, before you do anything like that, before you jump, let me just show you what your life would have been like or what what the world would have been like if you had never been born. And that's really the movie. It walks us through all these different scenes of his life, these really important and even moving scenes showing how things would have been different if George never existed. Now, You might know how it ends. Probably most of you or at least a good number of you have seen this movie before. And we'll get there in a little bit. But what strikes me about the movie, especially watching it now, is how long the beginning is. Okay, the beginning is actually this long buildup showing how George got to this point. How someone who is a pretty good person, someone who is a kind-hearted and selfless man, how he could end up standing on a bridge thinking about ending it all on Christmas Eve. What we see is a man who feels trapped. He feels trapped by circumstances. His father died unexpectedly when he was pretty young. He felt it was his duty as the son to take over the family business. He had no passion for that business, but it was duty. He he felt like he needed to provide for his family. So he put his own dreams on hold for the sake of others. He gave up dreams of college and world travel and moving out of their small town. And he's done it without complaint until now. But things have kind of reached a breaking point. See, his business isn't doing that good. Financially, it's not doing good. And then his uncle, uh, in kind of a boneheaded mistake, loses and misplaces some money. And now they're facing bankruptcy and losing everything. He feels trapped by his finances. He feels trapped by the mistakes of others. He feels trapped by his family even. There's a scene where if you're a parent, you might be able to relate, even though it's kind of shameful, where he's like, why do we have so many kids? And it's not that he doesn't love his family. It's not that he doesn't love his kids. It's just he feels this pressure, this burden to provide for them and be present with them. And he feels like he just can't do it. George has sacrificed himself for everyone else, and he feels he has nothing left to give. He's surrounded by people, and yet he feels completely abandoned and alone. Now, I start with George Bailey, not just because he's a famous Christmas character or whatever, but because I wonder if some of us can relate to this feeling of being overwhelmed on Christmas Eve. Maybe you're not quite at the point of standing on a bridge, but you're feeling a certain way. You feel trapped. Your job isn't going well. You've gotten older. You're not where you thought you would be by now. Your your health isn't good. Maybe things in your business just aren't going well. Your finances, maybe you've sacrificed yourself for everyone else and you feel like you don't have much to give. Maybe you're surrounded by people all the time. Maybe you have family coming over tomorrow, but really, if you think about it, you feel completely alone. You feel like no one's really got your back. You know, it's not an accident that It's a Wonderful Life is a Christmas movie, that it takes place on Christmas Eve. 
You know, on the one hand, we think, okay, Christmas, it's about joy to the world and peace on earth and all of this stuff. And yet the reality is a lot of times it's not like that. Now, if you're one of those people that is feeling all joyful right now, don't let me rain on your Christmas parade. Just, just carry that within your heart. Okay. And listen, but I think a lot of us know that Christmas Eve is sometimes the worst day of the year. In fact, statistically, I was reading this. It is statistically the most depressed or depressing day of the year, right? They were tracking kind of the effects of users of anti, antidepressants. They, they had people track like how depressed they were and turn in that data. And the one day of the year that people felt the most depressed, it's a little subjective, but the one day that people felt the most depressed of the year by far was December 24th, Christmas Eve. So I know some of us are feeling it. Maybe you came here and you're kind of happy, right? You put on a smile, you greet people, you know you're supposed to feel better and you push it away, you push it deep down. You, you eat your fancy meal and you open up your gifts and you you hug your aunt or whatever it might be. But deep down inside, you're feeling it. Right? You're feeling the loss of that loved one, especially acutely today. You're feeling the loneliness of your apartment more today. You're feeling the stress of not being able to provide the kind of gifts you want to give or to cook the meal that you want to cook or to even have the home that you want to invite people to today. Okay, so why am I bringing this up? Well, you were a little too happy when the kids were singing, so I'm kind of bringing you guys. No, I'm just kidding. We're not preaching Ecclesiastes, don't worry. But the reason I bring this up is because this is real life. And like I said, I think we come to church and we sing joy to the world. And we sing silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. And it's so incongruous. It's so internally inconsistent, right? All the Christmas cheer and how we really feel inside. Our lives are not calm. We're not feeling super joyful. And then we have the kids sing God with us. And it is cute and it does make us smile and laugh. And maybe we're not even thinking about it that deeply, But if I asked you, what does that mean? Especially for those of you guys who believe in God, what does that mean? That God is with us, that that's at the center of Christmas. Honestly, I think a lot of us wouldn't even know how to answer. We might get some theological thing that we learned in Sunday school, but we have no idea what that actually means in real life. And that's what we're going to talk about for a few minutes today. We're going to talk about a name we should always think about. When it comes to Christmas, not just at Christmas, but actually because of it, Emmanuel, which means God with us. So if you could open your Bibles to Mark 4, a famous Christmas passage. Now, you probably never heard a Christmas message on Mark 4 in your life, um, but you will today. Mark chapter 4. You probably heard this story, though. It's a pretty famous story of Jesus. Mark chapter 4. We're going to look at the end of this chapter, starting in verse 35. I'll read it for us when you get there, and then I'll pray, and then we'll just get into it, and we'll finish up on time, okay? So Mark 4, Mark 4, 35. <clears throat> Give you a second. It wouldn't be Zoe Community Church if we weren't preaching through a passage, so Mark 4. Let me read, starting in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. 
but he was in the stern, all, uh, he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's bow our heads. Father, we simply come before you on this Christmas Eve day. And we ask that you would help us to understand what it means that you are with us. Help us to know why Jesus is called Emmanuel. God, help us to understand, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, your presence and what Christmas actually means for us. God, I pray that you would do a work that only you can do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Mark is the shortest account of Jesus's life. There's four gospel accounts. Mark is the shortest. And it's the only one that doesn't talk about the Christmas story as you might think of it at all. Okay, so it doesn't talk about Mary and Joseph, no wise men, no shepherds. There's no angel Gabriel that appears. There's no theological meditation even on the eternal word who was with God and who was God becoming flesh. Mark just hits the ground running. If you open up Mark chapter 1, this is how it starts. A man named Jesus appears. He speaks like no one ever has, and he does when no one ever could. In Mark 3, he heals a man's crippled hand. He calls 12 men to be his disciples. And great crowds are beginning to follow him everywhere. And in Mark 4, he starts teaching the people in this way that they have never heard. He teaches them in these parables, taking ordinary things and turning them into profound spiritual truth. And when he's done, he says to his disciples, let's go for a ride in one of your boats. And this is where our passage begins. We'll look at it in three parts. The storm first, then the sleeping, then the stillness. You know the story, but let's talk about what it means. First, the storm. The storm, which is about being overwhelmed. Okay, verse 35, check it out. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Now, okay, it's Christmas, but Jesus is not a baby here. Okay, Jesus is around 30 years old, just so we're clear. Jesus is grown up. He was born as a baby in a manger. That is part of the story. That's how it happened. Merry Christmas. But he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, Luke 2. And here in our passage, as evening hits, as he makes the suggestion to go across to the other side, he's around 30 years old. It's crazy, right? The older I get, the younger that sounds. Jesus was 30 years old. Now, he wants to go to the other side. And if you look back at the beginning of chapter four, he's talking about the sea. He was teaching beside the sea. And it's not just any sea. It's the Sea of Galilee. Now, we hear a lot about the Sea of Galilee in the Bible. But just so we're on the same page, let's talk about it for a second. Jesus grew up in this area around the Sea of Galilee. Peter and John and some of the other disciples fished in the Sea of Galilee. This is the water that Jesus walked on another time. What do you picture, though? When you think of the Sea of Galilee, I know a lot of people, you've been around church, you know a little bit about Jesus. Maybe you're part of our church. You've heard about it before, but what do you picture? What do you see in your mind's eye? See Lake Levon or something like that. I mean, what do you see? You see the Pacific Ocean. The Sea of Galilee is not technically a sea. It's actually a huge freshwater lake. 
Okay, they call it the Sea of Galilee. They call it the Lake of Gennesaret. It has a lot of different names, but it's actually quite big. In fact, it's about 33 miles around. So if you want to walk around, it's longer than a marathon. Okay, and across at the longest point, it's about 13 miles long. So to cross the other side, it's not as simple as getting in a rowboat and just kind of going across for a few minutes or even a few hours. It's kind of an ordeal. Okay, it takes a lot of work. You need the wind behind you. Now, the Sea of Galilee, it also lies about 700 feet below sea level. So it's lower, okay? And around it are all these hills and even mountains. So to the northeast, Mount Hermon is there, and it's over 9,000 feet tall. So it's almost a 10,000-foot swing between a high point and the low point of where the water is. And this leads to intense weather patterns. Keep that in mind. Okay, so Jesus wants to cross this lake. Now, thankfully, some of Jesus' disciples, like I said, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're professional fishermen. Okay, they've sailed this lake their entire lives. They own a boat, so verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling up. Now, okay, like I said, the Sea of Galilee is below sea level, about 700 feet. The mountains are up to 9,000 feet above. Warm air will rise up from the sea. Cool air, cool air will come down from the mountains. And if you know anything about how weather works, how tornadoes or hurricanes form, this is a recipe for crazy weather. In fact, the Sea of Galilee is known for furious and dangerous winds. The words here in Greek for great windstorm, they can refer to a hurricane. Okay, now that's not exactly what happened, but it it just gives you a sense of how intense the winds are, how crazy the waves are. So you can imagine, okay, a boat, maybe 20 feet long, and they've excavated boats like this from the same area, maybe 20 feet long, five feet across, getting tossed around like a little toy, completely at the mercy of the elements. Now, I don't know if you've had any crazy experiences with weather. I, I haven't really um, but I was in Florida last week, and if there's any place that has crazy weather, it's Florida. But I was in Florida for kind of a last-minute family emergency thing, um, and I'd never been to Florida before. I just heard stories. Um, but Florida in the winter is super nice. It's everything that people talk about. It was like seven, mid-70s and sunny, right? So I'm like, I think I could live here. But everyone said, wait till the summer, so I guess I'll see. Um, but the second day, the day we left, we were only there for a couple of days. The day we left... It rained. Okay, so the first day I was saying I could live here. Second day, it was raining like crazy. So we were driving to the airport in our rental car, and it was like dumping rain. You could barely see. I'm like, I don't know how people even drive in this. And then our flight was delayed because it was raining so hard. And then we actually took off in an airplane. And if you think about air travel, it's so crazy. We're in this little metal cylinder. We're going to fly up into the air at 500 miles an hour. No thanks, but I do it all the time. We're flying up, and it was so turbulent that they didn't do any like drinks or anything like that. They said, sorry, we just can't do it. And then it was like 20 minutes to Dallas Love Field. They said, okay, now we can do it, but we're too close. So sorry. Hopefully you fly Southwest again. This is the 21st century though. I was thinking about this passage and I was thinking about my experience. This is the 21st century. Now we can actually fly in the sky and metal. Okay. We have technology. And yet if the weather's bad enough, we can't do it. You see what I'm saying? Even now, with all of our innovation, even with all of our inventions, we, we can't overcome the weather if it's bad enough. It's too dangerous. 
Storms are dangerous. They cause cars to wreck. They delay flights. They take lives. So imagine you're in a small wooden boat on a huge lake. It's the first century and a great windstorm arises and the boat is filling with water. What do you do in this situation? Why WD? Verse 38. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, We'll get to the sleeping Jesus in a minute. But here are the disciples. They, they, they're in a panic. They say, do you not care that we are perishing? They literally think that they're going to die. That's, that's panic. That's fear. And what did we say again? Well, the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. The mountains are about 9,000 feet at their highest point. This was not a new thing. In the first century, this is how it always was is how it still is today because there are high mountains and a low sea, uh, warm air rises from the sea and cool air comes down from the mountains and it creates crazy weather patterns. This was not news to them. We know this. They knew this. They had lived their entire lives in this area. This is the risk you take whenever you go sailing on the Sea of Galilee. Bad weather is part of the deal. Now, okay, I'm not trying to allegorize this text or beat an old cliche to death about the quote-unquote storms of life, but you have to understand the situation. The disciples, they grew up in Galilee. Some of them were professional fishermen. They lived on the lake even more they lived than they lived on ground. They were as prepared as you could be, and yet they still got overwhelmed by the storm. And that's exactly how life is. That's exactly how life is. We know life is hard. We've been preaching Ecclesiastes. We know that certain things are going to happen in life. Statistically, we know it from our own experience. We know that hard times will come. We know that sometimes we will get sick. We know that you can lose your job. It happens to people all the time. We know that loneliness is hard and that relationships sometimes are even harder. We know that there will always be bills to pay. We know that loved ones will pass, that every single person that we care about will die as every single person does eventually. We know all of this and yet doesn't make it easier when it actually happens. It doesn't. We might know exactly what happens. We might know it in our heads. And yet when we're in the thick of the storm, it's just as hard as if we got caught by surprise. It's not easy when the water starts filling the boat. And I was reading one professor of psychiatry this week. um, And this professor was talking about how there's an epidemic among housewives in particular uh, of kind of this, uh, uh, of having basically mental breakdowns around the holidays. Okay. And uh, the professor was talking about this one woman who was sharing about how she was already stressed to the limit, right? Getting the house clean and preparing the food and making sure like the kids are okay. And then her in-laws, I guess, showed up at the house with a 10 pound bag of raw shrimp and said, can you clean this and cook this right now so that we could eat some delicious shrimp, I guess. I don't know, really into shrimp. Just drop everything. And it was literally the shrimp that broke the camel's back, okay? She was so, she felt like she couldn't take it any longer. But life is like this. It doesn't have to be a storm. It could just be a bag of shrimp. But one of the reasons why I love this story in Mark chapter four is because it clearly shows us where the Bible is at. 
It's not a, a book that just flies high in the sky talking about ideas all the time. It understands that life can be crazy for us and that as human beings, we get overwhelmed. Now, what do we do about that? Second point, the, the sleeping, excuse me, the sleeping. And this is about how things look on the surface. Now, we skimmed over this. Okay, I was focusing on the disciples. I kind of directed the camera onto them. But I'm sure you caught a glimpse of this guy, Jesus, in the boat. Okay, everyone is panicking. The boat is rocking enough to make an experienced fisherman lose his mind. But at the stern of the ship, asleep in a manger, or excuse me, on a cushion, this carpenter termed rabbi named Jesus is fast asleep. He might as well be sleeping as a baby. Okay, that's not uh, an exaggeration to say. He is completely calm, unaffected by the storm. Go back to verse 38. But he was in the storm asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I mean, just think about that for a second. Okay, everyone is soaked. Everyone is screaming and yelling directions at each other. The, the disciples who aren't fishermen are yelling for their mommies or whatever. And Jesus, they have to wake him up. He's not even woken up by the commotion, by the rocking, any of it. Now, I don't know if we got any deep sleepers here. I feel like I'm pretty... I'm a pretty deep sleeper. I grew up in Southern California. I slept through like every earthquake that ever happened. But this is a strange detail to include. Don't you think? Like, what are we supposed to make of this information? Jesus asleep while the disciples are overwhelmed. I mean, I guess we could say Jesus is tired. And that's understandable, right? He spent all day doing ministry. I know the introverts here are, are, if you thought about, you know, Jesus and his ministry and how the crowds are all pressing in on him and they're bringing the sick to be touched by him. Some of us, we want to just curl up into a ball and die thinking about the pressure that was on him. So he was doing that. He was doing ministry. He's tired. He needs rest. It makes sense on a human level. But that's part of what's so strange about it, especially for uh, for Christians, because at the center of our faith is the belief that Jesus is not just a human being. Okay, we believe that Jesus is God. So you can see how this story in particular is very disconcerting. God is asleep. We're panicking. We're overwhelmed. We're going through something right now, and God is asleep. You can see how people's thoughts have spiraled here. Some people have even gone so far as to say, well, God wouldn't sleep, so Jesus can't be God. God doesn't need to sleep. I believe in a God who always takes care of me. Jesus being asleep, either he's not God or something's going on here. I don't get it. Well, hold your thoughts. Let's start with what we've been shown. Jesus for sure is at least human. That's what Mark 4 is teaching us. Jesus for sure is at least human. He's not a God who is pretending to be a human. He is a human being. He was born in a manger. He was the oldest son of Mary. He learned carpentry. He learned it from Joseph. He needed to eat when he was hungry. That's how Satan tempted him. He bled when he was injured on the cross. You remember this. And he needed sleep when he was tired. First of all, the point isn't that Jesus isn't God. The point is that Jesus is human. And not just any human, but the perfect human. Because, stay with me on this, because ideally... Ideally, we'd be able to sleep through storms too if we were the perfect human. What do I mean? Well, I read a story about a guy who taught himself to be an insomniac. 
he has some kind of thing, some kind of fear of sleep. And I guess it's not really that uncommon. Uh, people are scared of the dark. They're scared of sleep because it kind of resembles death a little bit. They're afraid they're not going to wake up. It's kind of a common phobia. But the interesting thing was he taught himself as a kid to not sleep by rehearsing all the things he was scared of during the day. So he would think about the school bully that he would see the next day beating him up. Or you think about his dad not coming back from work. You think about all the worst case scenarios, like a video on repeat. He would rehearse all of his fears. And kind of ironically, his fears would keep him from his other fear, which was sleeping. See, I think you guys understand this. A lot of us, we struggle to sleep. Maybe we didn't when we were kids, but we do now. And the reason why we struggle to sleep is because we do the same thing that kid did, just not on purpose. We're rehearsing all the things that could go wrong. We're thinking about the big meeting at work tomorrow. Am I ready for this? We're thinking about the checklist for Christmas Day. Are we going to be able to do this? We're thinking about that person we don't like or who doesn't like us that we're going to have to see. We're dreading that. See, the truth is anxiety is the enemy of sleep. Anxiety is the enemy of sleep. This is why Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. You know this? Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. And here it is, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. See, Psalm 127 is about how God is in control. It's about putting your money where your mouth is. If you're someone who says you believe in God, then how come you don't live like it? This is what I meant. Ideally, if we're people who say we believe in God, if we have a smidgen of faith, then it should affect how we live. Because God's got us, right? God is good. He is in control. He has a plan. So we don't need to be worried no matter what happens. So what does this tell us about Jesus? It's not so much that he's tired. It's that he isn't worried. You see that? It's not so much that he's exhausted. It's that he's not stressed. The contrast here is between the disciples who have seen Jesus do miracles and yet they're freaking out over everything. They're overwhelmed. And then there's Jesus who on a human level really doesn't know anything about boats. He's a carpenter and yet he's not afraid of the storm at all. There's calm in the storm even before Jesus calms the storm. The disciples don't get this. They interrupt it. uh, They interpret it, excuse me, as him not caring for them. So let's flip things around for a minute. Look at verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They don't excuse his sleeping as exhaustion. They don't understand it as calmness and peace. They see it as indifference. The only reason they would wake him up, the carpenter turned rabbi, is because they actually thought he could do something. He just wasn't for some reason. So their conclusion is that he doesn't care. And this is where we find ourselves, I think, so often as Christians. This is what I was talking about in the beginning. Yes, we go to church. Some of us go to church every week. We're, we're highly committed to God. We pray. We lift up our requests, our burdens, our stresses. We sing songs about God. And maybe in the pew, we have this confidence and this peace that God is in control. But then basically every other minute of the day, we're stressed out of our minds. Right? We feel like, okay, I prayed and hopefully God is doing something in the background because I don't know what he's doing. I just need to get this stuff done. Right? This shrimp is not going to shell itself. 
I got to do it. My mother-in-law is breathing down my neck. I got to shell this shrimp or else I'm disowned. Right? We're, we're stressed. We got to go shopping. We got to do this. My kid is sick. I prayed, sure, but I don't really believe that anything's going to happen because if I look around, nothing actually is happening. There's this disconnect. The storms hit, we get overwhelmed, we're crying out, and nothing, it feels like God is asleep in the boat. I mean, I know everyone's in a different point, but are there any prayers you prayed, even for the past year or years, where it feels like you don't even want to think about the progress on that prayer because nothing's happened? You don't want to get too discouraged by thinking about reality. Maybe there's trials that you're going through where you feel like you're on your own. Some of us feel abandoned by God. They ask Jesus, do you not care? And this leads to the third and final point, the stillness, the stillness, which is about what you can have if you understand who this man is, that even the wind and the sea obey him. Verse 39, this is the most famous part of the story. Pay attention. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. It's almost anticlimactic. He just says, peace, be still. And then everything is peaceable and still. Now, if you look at the Greek, he rebukes the wind. Okay, it says that in the English, but the word here is a personal word. It's like telling somebody to be quiet. In fact, the language is very similar to exorcism. Okay, and we see that Jesus has power over the demons, but there is something spiritual going on here. Jesus has complete authority. He speaks peace and stillness, and suddenly all is calm and all is bright. But the story isn't over. Verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He doesn't say, oh, sorry about that, right? He's like wiping his eyes. Uh, I was just really tired. You know how it is. It doesn't say, I get it. Windstorms are really crazy. Anyone would be scared. He doesn't say, how dare you accusing me of not caring? I'm literally the most caring guy who has ever lived. No, he asked them a simple question. Why? Why are you so afraid? He takes them back into the storm, into the moment of their panic. He wants them to understand themselves. Why were you so afraid? And this is something that you should ask yourself. I mean, think about the last time you stayed up late because of work. It was a few months ago. Think about the last time your kids were really sick. Maybe it was a few days ago. Maybe think about the time where you weren't sure if you'd be able to close on your house a couple of years ago. Think about that time a couple months ago when you got that text, can we talk? And your stomach just dropped through the floor. Now that you're past it, why were you so afraid? Now that you're past it, why were you so stressed? Now that you're past it, does it even bother you anymore? Jesus asked, okay, now that you're past it, now that you're not stressed, you got to understand, why were you so stressed about it? And then Jesus asked the question, have you still no faith? And this is the heart of it. The truth is what Jesus did here, he could have done at any time. He could have woken up as most people would during a crazy storm. He could have stilled the storm then. He could have made it so that the weather never got crazy. Obviously, he can control the wind and the waves with his words. So he could have just uh, spoken a blessing. They could have prayed for travel mercies before they got into the boat. You know how we do that. Jesus could have done this. Why did he let it get to where it was? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You know, a lot of Christians erroneously, we speak of faith as if it's a power. He's got to have more faith. All right, I got to charge up my faith. I forgot to plug in my faith last night. 
Listen, faith only has as much power as the thing that you place your faith in. Jesus isn't asking, do you have strong feelings of confidence, of random belief in something? He's asking, translate, he's asking, why didn't you trust me? Why didn't you trust me? Verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey, obey him? The focus, the emphasis here is on that word me. Not you, me, not me, me, but Jesus. When he says, why didn't you trust me? Who is Jesus? Psalm 135 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the cloud rise, clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Psalm 135 says, obviously it's God who can do these things. It's God who is with them in the boat. He's the one who controls the wind and the waves. It's not geography that randomly makes storms happen. The lightning is crafted by his hand. The wind blows from his storehouses. Jesus is the one who wasn't just sleeping in the storm. He's the one who was sovereign over the storm in the first place. This is God we're talking about. This is God we're talking about. So what's the takeaway? Well, 30 years before this, this event, 2000 or so years for us, the birth of Jesus Christ, the one who was sleeping, took place in this way. Listen to this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and what? And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is why it's good. I think even though we didn't really do it this year, this is why it's good every year to take some time and focus on Advent. It's true. God doesn't need to sleep. And yet in the mystery of the incarnation, Jesus Christ, God himself slept on a boat. See, this is what Christmas is supposed to be about. What we talk about, the birth of Christ, the word became flesh. The word is incarnation. The spiritual became physical. The eternal was born into time. The omniscient learned to crawl and then walk and then to run. He ate, he bled, he slept. Jesus was and is fully God and fully human. Why? To be with us. To be with us. Christmas isn't about God preventing every storm. Christmas isn't about God even stilling every storm exactly when we want him to. Christmas is about God with us in the storm. And I read this past week, this woman was writing about, uh, she was kind of reflecting on a, a past Christmas. And what she said was she found out that she was pregnant just a few days before Christmas. And she decided that she was going to save the news. She was going to keep it a secret and tell her husband on Christmas Day as a gift. Okay, it's kind of a sweet thing. 
Um, and Christmas was crazy. Okay. Like they had other kids. The kids were getting sick. She had all these chores to do. Who knows how much shrimp she had to, she had to deal with. She was decorating. She was shopping. She was cooking. There were all these stressors on her life, but she said for this one Christmas, she didn't feel bad at all. Every single day, she had this anticipation. She had like almost this protective shield around her. She had this good news that she couldn't wait to share. It was like there was a calmness that was in her heart that protected her from everything else. This good news shielded her from all the stresses of life. And when I was reading that, I realized that's exactly it. We have this good news that God could have left us to ourselves, but he didn't. Though we are sinners undeserving of his presence, though we so often lack faith, even as Christians, though we are weak in our understanding, God himself was born into our world as one of us. Not just to teach us, not just to show us things, but to actually be with us. To be with us in the storm, to be with us in our human condition. He actually came to live the perfect life we could never live and to die the death that we deserve for our sin. He came to be with us in this broken world east of Eden. He was abandoned so that we would never have to be. He was punished so that we wouldn't be. He died so that we could live. So take a step back for a second and have some perspective. The God who controls everything is with you by faith. The things we are going through now are light and momentary compared to what lies ahead in his presence. God has made his appeal in the person of Jesus Christ. Will you trust me? We'll close with this. George thinks of throwing himself off the bridge, but then an angel named Clarence, good angel name, he intervenes and he shows him his life and more specifically what life would have been like for everyone else without him there. He sees, for example, the time when he lost his hearing. So he was deaf in one ear. And that was kind of a problem for him. Um, But he remembers now when he sees the time that he actually lost his hearing when he saved his brother's life. His brother had fallen into a frozen lake. And he sees that without him being there, his brother actually died. Without his brother being there, his brother doesn't save some other people in the war. It's, It's just terrible without him. He sees no one taking care of his uncle. He sees the town suffering without a sacrifice. And there's kind of a narcissistic way to look at this movie. It's like, oh man, okay, George was actually really important. People, right, they should appreciate him more. He's actually the hero of this story. And I know some people, they watch it and they think, in the same way, I have sacrificed for many people and I'm a very important person too. But that's not it, I don't think. I think it's actually the opposite. I think on that bridge, he had gotten tunnel vision. He was only thinking about himself. No one's looking out for me. No one appreciates me. But then what Clarence showed him was actually, actually what you did for others was important in and of itself. Even if they don't thank you, right? Your brother is still alive, etc. These people are important. Their happiness, their lives is worth living for. So he decides not to jump off the bridge. He goes home. And unbeknownst to him, his family has rallied the town to give him the money that he needs for his business. They all love him and appreciate him. And he receives a note from Clarence from heaven that says, remember, no man is a failure who has friends. No man is a failure who has friends. See, here's the reality. Life 
has ups and downs. If you're going to sail on the lake, be prepared for the storms. They're going to come. We're not going to sugarcoat it. If you're a Christian, if you pray, it doesn't mean that things are going to be hunky-dory all the time. That's the truth. Christmas Eve might be the hardest day of the year for you for the rest of your life. But if you remember one name, Emmanuel, and if you remember what it means, God with us, then you'll have something that can never be taken away. A calm to carry with you in the midst of every storm. A friend in God himself. And that is good news. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the gift of Christ. He is all we need. And I pray that every person here would see that. It would help us to see how empty so many things are in this world. And how the only thing that we truly need is available to us right now. If only we would believe. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.